0: Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table, it's still on page uh, 1036. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 today. Now these are some of the most uh, well-known verses in all of Scripture, at least some of them. Everyone's heard this passage uh, in some way, shape, or form if, you are, uh, if you're familiar with Christianity at all. They're, they're a summary of salvation. What Paul lays out in detail in the first half, the first eight chapters of Romans, his letter to the Romans, he, he brings down to a concise summary here in these ten verses in his letter to the Ephesians. Um, they're, they're a continuation of his thought from chapter one. He, they spell out the reason why we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ as followers of Christ. What, what Paul prays for his readers to understand at the end of chapter one he then lays out for them in, uh, in these words here at the beginning of chapter 2. These, these verses, these 10 verses, are, are both breathtakingly beautiful and disturbingly honest. They're disturbingly honest, so much so that it can be tempting to try to spin them in a way that softens the blow of the realities that they assert, but it's only when we're honest with these words, when we're honest about those realities that we truly see the beauty that they reveal, they pave the way for us to see God in all of his splendor and his glory. Today we're gonna take an honest look at these verses and they're gonna help us comprehend a God who is both measured in his wrath and unrelenting in his mercy. And my prayer is that when we're done, we'll see the beauty of God's work in our salvation so clearly that it will free us to focus on the purpose of the good works that God has prepared for us to do. So I want to read this passage. I want to pray for God's help. And I want to jump in together. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. "...carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace... Through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are reading the very words of God as we read them in Paul's letter. And we pray this morning that your spirit who inspired them would enliven our hearts and enlighten our eyes to understand them so that we might have greater hope in the the reality of the finished work of Christ and greater motivation to work in the freedom that we now have in him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You You ever taken a job? You ever been hired? Ever worked somewhere where your job description isn't very clear? yeah at all, okay, so it, it can cause all sorts of problems, right you you end up you either end up doing things that you're not supposed to do, and you get in trouble for them, or you end up doing uh not doing things that you are supposed to do, but you don't really know what those things are until somebody reprimands you for them, right? <laughs> Apparently, I'm hitting a chord today. Uh, sometimes we can get confused about the relationship, that, the, the, the relationship between salvation and our works. We need to understand what Paul is saying here in these verses. Our works don't save us, but our salvation puts us to work. They, they, it gives us a job description, right? And so we need a good job description in order uh, to, to understand what those works are and, and how we operate in them as a result of the salvation that we've been given. And so our passage is going to help us with that today. And so here's sort of the the main idea for us, is that because the work of salvation is God's alone, our work must be then to display his saving grace and his saving work to others. We display his saving grace when we're honest about our old nature, when we boast in God's unchanging nature, and when we live in the new nature that God has given us. But first, we have to deal with some honest things here. Look at verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Now, Paul is writing to Gentile believers, um, non-Jewish Christians, right? And he's, re- and he's reminding them of what they used to be like. He says, and you were dead, But hold on, because he's writing to live people, right? They're reading this. They're listening to it being read. These people are still breathing, so he must mean something different than physical death here. Now, the idea in the Greek is that they were once unresponsive to the things of God. That's what dead means here. I spent 12 years on the fire department in Goodfield, and in those 12 years, uh, we'd, we would get calls on, uh, uh, for uh, emergency response, medical responses, where they would describe the patient as unresponsive, okay? That meant that he, could follow, that he couldn't follow general commands that were given to him or react to any kind of prompting. He could still be breathing. He could still be uh, conscious even, awake, eyes open, but he couldn't give a verbal answer or perform a physical action when asked to do so. He was unable incapable in that moment, unresponsive. This is what Paul is getting at here. The Gentile believers were once unable to follow God's commands because they were living in sin. They were unresponsive to God and incapable of obedience to him. They were dead in their sins and transgressions. That's what he means. Now I want you to pay attention to the word walked in verse 2 because we're going to see that, that, that same idea show up again in uh, when we get to verse 10, it, it refers to the overall conduct of one's life. This continual pattern of behavior and direction in which one moves. So what does Paul say they, they previously walked in? Trespasses and sins, right? He's saying that their way of life used to be rebellion against God. Their works once pointed to sin's work in them. And what did it reveal? It revealed death spiritual death. But where did their pattern of behavior come from? Paul says that the Gentiles previously walked according to the ways of this world and according to the ruler of the power of the air. Now, when he talks about the ways of this world, he's referring to this this pattern of living that's characterized by a set of of beliefs and values and morals uh, that are in rebellion to God. We can see that in our own culture, can we not? It's depicted as a course of wickedness that the world has plotted, like the blue line on your map app that that shows you how to get from point A to point B. Paul says that the the Gentile believers once followed the world's route, and they walked the way the world walked. Now, the ruler of the power of the air is is Satan. That phrase, the power of the air, is kind of a, a, a funky one, unless we understand the context Paul's talking about the space between heaven and earth that he calls the heavens and other places in this letter. And in in Paul's day, people understood the heavens to be the dwelling place of both good and evil spiritual beings. So Satan is the ruler of the evil powers that dwell in that realm. Here in verse 2, Paul says that the Gentiles used to follow the wickedness of the world because like the world, they they were enslaved under the dominion of the ruler of wickedness. The New Living Translation gives us a helpful summary in verse 2. It says, You used to live in sin like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So the spirit of deception and, and enslavement that comes from Satan and his evil forces is now working in the disobedient, literally in the sons of disobedience. Sin causes those who are enslaved by it to belong to the family of those who rebel against God. And the spirit now working in them is a far cry from the spirit of wisdom and and revelation that's now working in the children of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1.17. The spirit working in the disobedient is a spirit of deception. It's a spirit of pride, foolishness, lust, greed, everything else that's evil. It's a spirit of death not a spirit of life. And so the Gentile believers were once dead in their trespasses and sins as they walked in the ways of the world and obeyed the ruler of the power of the air. But in verse three, Paul says that it's not just the Gentile believers that were once this way. says the Jewish believers were this way too. Look at verse three. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh. And thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Desires and inclinations are not always bad things by themselves. We need to understand that. But they are when you associate them with the flesh, the way Paul does here. Now, the word flesh has several different meanings and uses in the New Testament. But when Paul uses it here, he's talking about the physical body that's so dominated by sin that it becomes the very embodiment of it. Wherever the flesh is, every kind of sin is there too. It's present there with it. No good thing can live in this kind of flesh. And so if the flesh is dominated by by sin, then fleshly desires and inclinations are also dominated by sin. But Paul isn't saying that they lived in sin against their will. He's saying that they lived in sin because they wanted to. They were were carrying out the inclinations of their flesh and thoughts. The picture that's given here is one of walking back and forth from one evil thing to the next. One craving to the next uh, of wickedness and indulging in each one. Kind of like walking down the middle of the carnival and throwing money at all the games you'll never win. Right? James confirms this idea in his letter. in James 1 says but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death paul says that these these gentile believers once had a mindset of sin a mindset of sin they plotted their course By their own fleshly desires. Their destination was locked in place and they never even considered an alternate route. Okay? He puts it clearly in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 8, he says, Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who who are in the flesh cannot please God. He doesn't just say they will not. He says they cannot. And this is why Paul says that the Gentiles were dead in their trespasses and sins. It's, It's why he said that he and the other Jewish believers were previously in the same predicament. Just because the Jews were God's covenant people as a nation does not mean that they all pleased God. They lived for themselves in in their own fleshly desires as, as the Gentiles did. And as a result, they were dead in their trespasses and sins just like the Gentiles were. Even though they were given the law, they disobeyed that law and they rebelled against God. They may have been children of Abraham, but they weren't children of God. They were children under wrath. This is what Paul says here. Jews were distinct as God's chosen nation. Gentiles were considered everyone else who wasn't a Jew. And so when Jew and Gentile are mentioned together in Scripture, it depicts the whole of humanity. Everyone. That means that what Paul says here applies to every human being. That means that we can't just look in on this as observers. We're participants in this. We all start our our physical life spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins and Paul captures that with a phrase in verse 3 he says we are by nature children of wrath our human condition is a product of our inner being sin didn't just happen to us we were born with it in us this is what Paul says sin was natural to us because we were sinners by nature a fish swims because it's a swimmer by nature right It loves water because it lives in water. We sinned because we were sinners by nature. We loved sin because we lived in it. Now I say that in the past tense because if you're united with Christ, that's no longer true of you. That's why Paul speaks of it in the past tense here too. You no longer love to sin because you no longer live in it if you're in Christ. You're not in sin, you're in Christ. That's the reality for every believer. Even though sin still lingers in our lives, it no longer rules our hearts because we've been given a new heart and a new nature and a new love. So you can be honest about what you once were because you no longer are what you once were. But that means that if you're not a follower of Christ, then Paul's description in these first three verses is your current reality. This is the truth of what what you are right now and, and that's difficult to hear because it grates against the way you want to see yourself doesn't it because we're born sinners by nature our own sin deceives us into thinking that we're better than we really are we want to be the exception to the rule right we want to point out the fact that there are fish that can live out of water for an extended period of time but we want to ignore the fact that at, at the end of that time they have to get back in the water or they die We want to think that people are inherently good because we want to be inherently good. Yes, sometimes we do bad things, but those things aren't an accurate picture of what we're really like, right? Those are just slip-ups. They're mistakes. Isn't it interesting that when people uh, sin, they tend to excuse it by saying, hey, I'm, I'm only human, right? Or nobody's perfect, Aren't they agreeing with Paul's assessment here when they say those things? Why is it that nobody is perfect? Why is it that to err is human? Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews before he became a follower of Christ. He prided himself on following God's law as a Pharisee, and yet he includes himself here as one who was also by nature a child under wrath. So if he was so good, how can he be so bad? In the book Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland puts it this way. We can vent our fleshly passions by breaking all the rules, or we can vent our fleshly passions by keeping all the rules. But both ways of venting the flesh still need resurrection. We can be immoral dead people, or we can be moral dead people. Either way, we're dead. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Paul says that not only did all of humanity inherit sin and death through Adam's sin in the garden, but we also sinned with Adam, and that makes us personally deserving of God's holy judgment. We are by nature children under wrath, we're born in sin. The good news of the gospel is only good news if we first understand and accept the bad news. But when we come to that realization, the bad news doesn't last very long because the good news is so overwhelmingly good, right? It takes grace to be honest about our old nature, and God gives us the grace that we need to do that. And the grace that he gives us then leads us to boast in God's unchanging nature. Look at verses 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 says, so that, but we're not there yet. Actually, I need to read it. I just realized that I was going to skip it otherwise. So we are there. He also, uh, verse 6. I got so excited I forgot a verse. I'm sorry. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's no way I want to leave that verse out. These are some of the most precious and wonderful words in all of Scripture. Those two words right there, but God, right? And they flow from the very nature of who God has always been and always will be. They're true because God is who God is. And what is God? What does Paul say? He's rich in mercy. It doesn't say he was rich in mercy. It doesn't say that he's going to be rich in mercy. It says he is, present tense, Continuing, always, he is rich in mercy. God's mercy flows from who he is. But then we need to ask, what about God's wrath? We were by nature children under it, according to verse 3, right? Contrary to how we, we contend to think about God, God is not a God of wrath. And by that I mean he's not vengeful and vindictive and cruel. He's holy, he's righteous, he's just, he's merciful, he's loving. And because he is those things, he must exercise wrath against sinners who rebel against his holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, and love. He's altogether and only ever good. We have to understand that. And his wrath is his good response against evil. It's a measured wrath. It's not more than is needed, and it's not less than is needed. Consider how the world responds to sin. When someone is wrong, that person will sue for gluttonous amounts of money in order to get the compensation that he feels he deserves, right? People stand at the ready to grind someone's reputation into the ground and and quote-unquote cancel that person because that person said or did something wrong, even if those people aren't even directly affected by what that person said or did. Others will defend or spin the wrongful words and actions of another out of allegiance or self-preservation rather than condemn those words and actions because they're wrong. The world's ability to accurately measure and dole out justice against evil is crippled by its own evil nature. It's crippled by the evil nature of the ones who live in the world. But there is no evil to cripple God's ability to dispense his wrath. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He is only ever good. And he only ever exercises his wrath against evil. If there were no evil in the world and no rebellion against God, he would have no reason to exercise his wrath. This means that when he does exercise it, he always does so justly. And when he doesn't exercise it, this is the glorious truth for us. It doesn't mean that God is unjust. What does it mean? It means he's merciful. And how is it that God can show us mercy? Because he poured out his wrath against our sin on his own son who didn't deserve it. But who willingly bore the entire measure of it on the cross in our place. The father didn't excuse our sin. No, no. He punished our sin. But he punished his son for it and he forgave us of it. Why? Because of his great love that he has for us. According to Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. It's a love that he had for us before the foundation of the world in which he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God carried out the desires and the inclinations of his heart, of his nature, when he redeemed us through his son. These are good desires and good inclinations. It's the good pleasure of his will. If God's wrath is a measured cup emptied from his hand, then his mercy is a raging waterfall flowing eternally from his heart. And his rich mercy In this rich mercy, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. After the Father emptied his wrath against us onto his Son at the cross, he raised his Son from the grave to show that he has no more wrath toward us whom he's raised with him. Jesus was undeserving of wrath, but he was not unwilling to bear it on our behalf. He is the very embodiment of mercy and grace of God. The grace by which we have been saved is not a thing. It's a person. The mercy that we've been given is not a thing. It's a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? God in a physical body, not dominated by sin, but by the perfection of grace and mercy and life. Wherever Christ is, every kind of good is present with him. No sinful thing can live in his flesh. Where Christ is, life is, because where Christ is, mercy and grace are found. He willingly received what he didn't deserve so that we could freely receive what we don't deserve. That's grace. This is why we're saved by grace, because God saved us by giving us himself. And in saving us by grace, God made us alive with Christ, and he raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with Christ in the heavens, with, with, with. Our present reality is no longer dead in sins and trespasses, and yet it's so easy for us to walk around in that posture, isn't it? Our present reality is resurrected to eternal life with Christ. God has united us permanently to Christ and as his body. So that where Christ is, there we are now with him. We we now share in Christ's victory over sin and death and Satan and the world. We no longer are obligated to those things because they have no more hold over us. To quote Dane Ortland from Gentle and Lowly again, Paul says we are right now seated with Christ in heaven. That means if you're in Christ, you are as eternally invincible as he is. Richard Sibbes said, whatever Christ is freed from, I am freed from it. It can no more hurt me than it can hurt him now in heaven. And back, uh, Dane Ortland, back to him. For God to de-resurrect you, to bring de- uh, to bring his rich mercy to an end, Christ Jesus would himself have to be sucked down out of heaven and put back in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You are that safe. We need to chew on that. I love that. That's a reality that I need to remember when the weight of temptation feels so unbearable or when my remaining sin leads me to self condemnation. If God has saved me and united me to Christ, guess what? I'm securing him. Nothing is sucking Jesus back down out of heaven and sticking him back in the grave. You see, God exercised the immeasurable greatness of his power to raise Christ up and to raise us up with Christ so that he can show us the immeasurable riches of his mercy and his grace toward us in Christ for all eternity. The mighty working of his strength is an, exercise, is an exercise of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Salvation is all about God. We, are the, we, we, we may be the objects of the salvation, but, but God is the subject of salvation. It may be directed toward us, but it's produced by him. It's his work, not ours. Paul makes this clear in verses 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. In the Greek there, God's gift refers to the whole phrase, saved by grace through faith, which means that all of salvation, including faith itself, is God's gift to us. But that doesn't always compute, right? doesn't always sit well with us because we have this tendency to want to believe that, that faith is something that we produce in ourselves as a response to God. So when we talk about salvation, we give the picture that we're drowning in the ocean because of our sin, and God in His grace throws us this beautiful life preserver, and, it, and all we have to do is reach out and grab it. And when we reach out and grab it, when we choose to grab the life preserver, we call that faith. But that's not the picture that Paul gives here in this passage. We can't reconcile that with this. Remember, these words are not merely Paul's words, but these are the God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired words of Scripture. What Paul explains here is not just Paul's view of salvation, it's God's view of salvation, that he's giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know and understand. And in his view, we're not drowning in the ocean, we're dead at the bottom of it, with no chance, no chance of escaping. The only way we're going to grab that life preserver is if God reaches down into the bottom of the ocean and grabs us, puts breath in our lungs, and lifts us up. That's the only way, and that's exactly what happens. He removes our dead hearts and gives us new hearts that beat for him so that when we hear the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, as Paul puts it in chapter 1, we believe what we hear. Faith is not choosing God to rescue us. Faith is trusting that God has rescued us. We freely choose things according to our nature. In verses one through three, Paul says that we freely choose the sinful natures or the, 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 the sinful desires of our sinful nature. We indulge ourselves in these things. We go back and forth freely on our own, from one thing to the other. We walked around as spiritual zombies, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive. He didn't throw us something. He gave us something. He put life into us. He he made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. And when God made us alive, he didn't revive our sinful nature. No, he gave us a new nature in Jesus Christ, one that is united with his own. This is the act of regeneration, God making us alive again, recreating us in Christ. R.C. Sproul said, in regeneration, God plants a desire for himself in the human heart that otherwise would not be there. So what is faith then? Faith is the instrument God gave us to express the desire God gave us for himself when he saved us by his grace. Faith is the instrument that God gave us to express the desire that God gave us for himself when he saved us by his grace. This is not from yourselves, Paul says. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. If we can conclude that we did something in salvation that God did not do, or that we say that he was hands-off in any particular area or aspect of it, then we open the door for boasting in ourselves, and that's reflective of our old nature, not our new one. To say that salvation is all of God's work and none of our own, though, is not to say that we have no part in it at all or that our faith is not genuine. That's because salvation is not something that God just simply does to us. It's something that God does in us. He gives us a new heart that burns with love for him and hatred for our old way of life, for our old self, the old passions and desires of our flesh. And as a result, we truly and freely choose to trust and obey him. It takes grace to boast in God's unchanging nature and freely receive the gift of salvation for what it is through faith. And God gives us the grace that we need to do that. And in the grace that he gives us, then that leads us to live in the new nature that God has given to us. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Remember that word walked in verse 2? If you're following along in an ESV, then you'll see that word, that actual word again, walked, in verse 10. But the idea is here in, in in the CSB that we're using in the phrase for us to do. Paul says that the Gentile believers once walked in the trespasses and sins in which they were dead. Their works once pointed to sin's work in them, and that revealed spiritual death, right? The same idea shows up again here in 10 in in this phrase, for us to do, only now it has a new direction. As followers of Christ, our works now point to God's work in us, and it reveals eternal life. We're God's workmanship. We're his creation. And as believers, we've been recreated in Christ to walk in the good works that God has prepared ahead of time for us to do because he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. What he chooses us to be, he is now making us become. And and our good works are reflective of the good work that God continues to do in us. You know how God has chosen to reveal his saving grace? Yes, in His word, but also in those whom He' saved by His grace. As a display, as, as, as believers, we are living, breathing, walking displays of God's immeasurable grace toward us in Christ. As a church, we are the body of Christ designed to display the grace of Christ. The work that God has prepared for us is designed to reflect the work that God has done in us. Through our good works, we display the saving work of God to a world that needs to be saved. We need to understand this right here. Our work is not saving work. Our work is displaying work of the saving work of God. We have nothing to earn because we've been freely given everything already in Christ. The good works that God has prepared for us to do aren't a list of chores that we need to finish in order to get to heaven or to keep what we've been given or to pay him back for it. That list would be never ending. No, because God has saved us by his grace. Everything that he's given us to do for the rest of our lives is a reflection of that grace working in us. And an avenue through which we can make his gospel of grace known to others who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. So, what are the good works that he's prepared for us to do? So many. And Paul devotes the entire second half of his letter to drawing that out for his readers. So, read ahead. But here's a glimpse. The good works that God has prepared ahead of time for us to do are good works that display the heart of God to others. They're works that are rich in mercy. They're works that are great in love. They're works uh, of grace and kindness toward others in Christ. They're works that unite us together in Christ as the family of God. They're works that deny the flesh and put sin to death. They're works that triumph over worldly temptations and stand firm against our spiritual enemy. They're works that boast in God's desire and ability to save. Church, this is our job description. We work to display the heart of God to others by displaying his saving work in us. We display that work when we're honest about our old nature because that's not who we are anymore. We display that work when we're, we boast in God's unchanging nature because we never have to doubt these things about him. And when we live in the new nature that God has given us, we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is God's gift not by works, so that no one, none of us, can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has already prepared for us to do. Let's get to work. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we, as those who have been united to Christ through the saving work of Jesus on the cross, that we can stand here together in unity with one another and freely proclaim the goodness of our saving God. That we don't have to measure up to anything because you have united us to Christ who measures all things and is above all things. I pray, God, that you would help us, strengthen us in our present reality To know these truths in a deeper way, to rest in the finished work of Jesus while we also get busy doing the work that you have given us to do, to make your grace known. Lord, would you help us? Let it be an extension of our awe of your grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let it be an act of worship as we go out. Give us eyes to see the deadness of this world so that we shake it off but so that we also have compassion on those who are walking around dead in their sins and trespasses. Knowing that we would be walking around dead in our own sins and trespasses if God in his great love for us and his rich mercy hadn't made us alive in Christ. We pray, God, that over the course of the life of this church and our lives here together, that we would be a faithful display of your goodness and grace and your saving power and that many would come to know you. We love you. We thank you for the work that you've given to us. Help us to see it clearly and do it freely. In Jesus' name, amen.